You are listening to EE Entrepreneurs, where we meet the engineers who turn their passions into business ventures with innovations that benefit people and the planet. Hi, I'm Amy Kalnaskis, editor with EE World Online. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to refer to today's guest as a Renaissance chairman, company director, economist, engineer, industrialist, probably a few more titles, including the grandson of a famous Hungarian portrait artist, Philip Alexis de Laszlo. From director at Step Together Volunteering to a current major shareholder of the Royal Takaji Wine Company in Hungary, Damon Patrick de Laszlo is the director of Harwin PLC. What started out as a dedicated screw-turning facility of the de Laszlo Group over 66 years ago, Harwin is now a designer and manufacturer of electrical and electronic interconnect products and is headquartered in Portsmouth, Hampshire in the UK. Perhaps the fascinating and eclectic list of the organizations, companies, and foundations de Laszlo has started or has otherwise made a significant mark in is best representative by the de Laszlo Foundation itself, established in 1987. The foundation is dedicated to advancing and promoting education and research in art, science, economics, and medicine, and provides a number of scholarships for degree and PhD students. It's also quite representative of Harwin itself, which promotes a culture of mentorship, apprenticeship, and stewardship. And what's in a name? Specifically, Harwin? I won't give it away here. Stick around and you'll hear it directly from Damon, but clue, it's a couple of names and a couple. Okay, that was a near spoiler alert. Let's get to the interview. So Damon, could you tell us a little bit about you and your family's background? And it goes quite a ways back, but also what inspired your grandfather, right? Patrick DeLaslo to start the company in 1952. Okay, well, firstly, Patrick DeLaslo was my father. Uh, my grandfather was Hungarian, called Philip DeLaslo, who came to England in 1907, for which I'm eternally grateful, because uh, Hungary was a great place to leave at that point. And he was an artist. Uh, my father was brought up in England and went to Oxford and studied economics, but he had two brothers who were scientists. One was a uh, physicist and the other was actually early days of electronics. And after he lex- left Oxford, he joined his brother making radio valves or tubes, as they're called in America. And they, in fact, developed the first miniature radio tubes back in the 30s. And that business uh, survived. It eventually went bankrupt, like a lot of small companies, because the big companies decided to take him over and he didn't want to be taken over, which was a mistake. Mm. And then he actually got killed in a car accident. My father, using his knowledge of electrical, electronics and economics, started making quite simple things like valve holders to put the or tube holders to put the valves into and then went on to develop things like fiberglass boats. Uh, He had a company making cameras. He loved engineering. Uh, In fact, still today, uh, when you fly on your airplane and they say that little light lights up when you go in the water, that was designed by his company called McMurdo um, just after the war. So that's the background. Harwin itself has a strange background. One of my father's managers, senior managers, was called Harry Diggle. And he got killed in an accident, and his wife was called Winnie. And in those days, we're talking about the end of the 40s, early 50s, there weren't very good pension arrangements. So Harwin is Harry and Winnie making Harwin, and it was the screw machine shop of McMurdo. 
and he allocated a couple of machines to her, and the profit from those machines went to pay her a pension. When he sold his other businesses in the 70s, nobody wanted Harwin. It was literally a little jobbing shop. It did any work that came along, and he, it kept him amused after he retired until he died in 1980, when, as a family business, it landed on my plate. I was running a computer bureau at the time, because I've always loved computers, and didn't pay a lot of attention to it through the 80s. It ticked along, taking contracts and jobbing, turning, and making bits for the electrical industry. In the 90s, because I was interested in computers and chips, I got it making um, what were called IC sockets. You used to plug your um, chips into an IC socket on a printed circuit board. We used our turning to go down that, uh, that route and turning and molding. Then it got into financial difficulties in the recession around 2000 and very nearly went under. We weren't getting orders and the market had changed. People were going much more electronic and the company was focused towards making lumps of metal to solder wires to what were called terminal lugs. So there was a change in the market, but the old management kept ticking along in the old way. Anyway, we had a management um, sort out during 2000 and 2003, and I took two of my brighter juniors, uh, one was production engineer and one was R&D. Incidentally, both had started life as apprentices, and we decided to go seriously into the connector business and gradually turn the company around by bringing on a lot of technology. And I happened to have a love of computers and technology. And the early 2000s, you were starting to get screw machines, molding machines, all sorts of tool-making machinery being computer-driven, which was very exciting. And we bought a spark erosion machine and a wire erosion machine, started making our own stamping tools and molding tools, which were quicker and cheaper for us to make than the typical way of going to a tool maker. And by 2005, we were still tiny. I was running several other companies at the time. I said, we haven't got enough engineers. We couldn't hire engineers because nobody coming out of university really understood the sort of machinery we were using, which is not surprising. They're brilliant at building bridges or motor cars, but not making tiny turn parts, tiny moldings. So we started an apprentice program. It seemed to be the best way to train people. And since then, we've been taking on between three or four young people um, for now, from 2005 to 2018. Today, I think over half this management and senior engineers started with us as apprentices and we're a 260-person company. There it is in a nutshell. <laughs> that's a really big nutshell. <laughs> um, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, I was, I was going to ask, and you answered the question, um, how, how, how did the company adapt over the years? And, and you answered it quite well, especially during, I, I remember that period, 2000, yeah. 2001, and how many companies did go out of business. So would you say yeah. that, number one, like your extensive computer background, and number two, taking a, to my knowledge, a unique way to, to create a, a more skilled employee force? Do you think that contributed to not only the continuation of the company, but the flourishing of the company? I, I think uh, contributed. It, it was the core, the core gamble at the time, because at the time people weren't training apprentices. And my production director, Paul McGuinness, and I worked very closely together. And he started as an apprentice. And I said, well, how do I get somebody who can run a modern piece of machinery? And the answer was, well, we have to train them. We can't hire them. 
So we took on some young and sent them to the local technical college and they worked with us. They worked in technical college. They learned all the basic engineering skills, but they learned how to run modern machinery. We started very early on saying what we want are young people who worked in every department because the other innovation was to say, if we're going to compete with Asia and Germany and America, but particularly Asia, where the labor rates are much lower, we need to automate and we need to be vertical. So this is completely contrary to business school teaching where you specialize. So we design our own products. We design our own tooling, that is mill tools and stamping tools, and we design the assembly machines to put it together. So the opportunities for a young person in all those areas is great. And modern 3D CAD now is fantastic because young I can do 2D CAD, but 3D CAD blows my mind. It's too complicated. <laughs> it's like flying a helicopter. You can go in every direction. But it's and it's very exciting. And if you live with it uh, and like it, and you know how every other department works, then you can innovate and develop very quickly new products all the time. So why do you think that that sort of thinking still hasn't, at least again, to my knowledge, hasn't caught on in a bigger way, especially when companies are struggling to find skilled engineers? Well, you know, the, obviously, the apprenticeship idea is centuries old, yeah. but I don't hear a lot about that, you know, and, and also training for the entire business. That, to me, is also unique, but which makes sense, because I think if you're thinking holistically across your entire business, then you become, as you said, more innovative and more creative. So, so why isn't it caught mm. on? Why isn't this happening everywhere? I, I have no idea. I mean, I sit on the Economics and Policy Committee of the Engineering Federation here. I was, I was chairman of the Electronics Industry Federation for many years back in the 90s. I mean, in this country, our management training is appalling. And in America, I did a course at Harvard. The teaching is all sort of financial stuff, a lot of marketing. Um, but it's a lot of it's focusing on, on avoiding vertical integration because the, the reputation of conglomerates sort of permeated and everybody said, oh, well, you specialize, you become a highly skilled mold tool company or whatever. But that doesn't work in an integrated world, I don't think. But the theory, the, we put the theory into practice and it's worked, is all I can say. And I think the only way to, to develop a company today is to train people in the ethos and the technology. I want young, energetic, enthusiastic, imaginative people who can work together and not be in silos. Yeah, and I don't think they come out of university like that. That is something I feel has to be nurtured. Speaking of which, so do you do you partner with universities? I mean, I know in, in this country, a couple decades back, there was this adopt a university idea, but um, a lot of companies you know, started putting their products into universities and having the students work with them so that they would you know, get trained, obviously, on the products. But that was still a little bit more of a specialization type of way to approach it. So what is your interaction with universities? Well, I've tried on a number of occasions... I have to say, unsuccessfully, I wanted to do an exercise on ultrasonics and went to two universities and various other projects. There's a totally different ethos in England between universities and industry. I mean, our university population slightly despises industry. At school, you're taught if you're a failure, you go, you go into industry. And, and it's, it's such a different ethos. I mean, we are very dynamic. And, you know, yesterday is soon enough. 
I always say to people, I hate, I'm very ticklish. I hate the grass growing under my feet. So, you know, get on with it. <laughs> you know, the academic mind wants to study it and write a report and think about it, and then they go on holiday all summer. I, I don't work that time scale. So we have not been terribly successful. We've been successful where universities are commercialized. I mean, we work with Surrey Satellite, for instance, which mm -hmm. is one of the big satellites, but that's a spin-off of the university. And we love satellites because they want very well-engineered, high-reliability, lightweight, small connectors, which is just what is the sort of challenge that we like to deal with. As a global company, how does this ethos that Harwin has scale that across the world and, and your other locations and the people that you hire there? Well, we don't. I mean, we, we sell through distribution. Uh, a majority of our sales, no, more than half our sales, go through American distribution companies. The electronics industry is basically serviced for its components by distribution companies. Mm -hmm. So that was a novel idea for an English company because I used to have a huge battle with the old management. Oh, well, you know, you give away so much margin to a distribution company. I have to say, well, I'm not a distribution company. I want to be engineering. The fact that you give a distribution company a margin is fine. They're specialists. They know and they have thousands of companies and thousands of customers. So why not get them to do the job? That's the only bit we subcontract, so to speak, is primarily selling because that's a quality we don't have. And I don't want to be in the warehouse distribution business. That's quite a critical attitude. It's the attitude of the American, big American semiconductor companies. I mean, they don't want to sell $5 worth of uh, semiconductors to you. They say, go to a distributor. So that's a lesson I learned years ago. They're not taught to do it. And public companies can't do it because our return on capital is high, but we spend all the profits on new machinery and new toys. We spend 6% of our turnover on research and development and about 10% on new plant and machinery every year, which is 70 or 80% of our profits. So That's a sort of German middle company attitude. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't that make you an attractive potential buy for another larger company? Has that happened? I mean, you've, like I said early on, you've remained family-owned, privately-owned business for so long. I get about two or three procession, but you know, letters a month that say, you know, we've been searching the electronics industry and we are part of whatever it is group and we're longing to buy you. Please come and talk. And the answer is, I don't actually have time. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, on, not on the market. Uh, and you're not my, even tempted. My two sons are now over 30 keep saying to me, Dad, why don't you retire? And I said, well, okay, what do I do when I do retire? <laughs> Much more fun. <laughs> running a business. And are they part of the business? Uh, one of them's on the board. I'm trying to teach him about, he, he, he did a business school, the business school course at Oxford. And he, you know, keeps telling me how to expand the company. There's a great story of L.L. Bean, his nephew saying, well, dad, you know, we ought to start offices in here and there. And he said, son, I want to sit down and talk to you. How many hot breakfasts can you eat? And the answer is, yeah, well, I can do one a day. He said, well, why do you want to grow the company that fast then? You don't need to. Just enjoy it and grow steadily and, and be resilient because you're going to get another recession. And that's when you go bust. You've overextended. Yeah. So would that, that be something that you would advise someone who starts a business as well? The first thing when you start a business is survive. You can worry about everything else afterwards. <laughs> Starting <laughs> businesses, is, I've done several myself. And not, some have failed and some have not failed. But uh, that's really hard particularly today, because the bureaucracy today is 
a, a real showstopper. I mean, you can be one or two man business, but when you get to 10 or 15, all your payroll taxes and compliance and all that sort of stuff, and they're designed to shut you down. I can't speak for America, but it's certainly the case here. No, I, I would say that's that's the case as well. I think it's, you know, it's attractive wanting to start a business with this cool new product that you have been designing. And I think for some folks, it's just how can I sell this and make a lot of money really quickly? I'm not sure there's a lot of education behind what goes into just you know, not just designing and marketing a product, but developing a company that will that will last. So very hard. Yeah. Before I get into some of your other activities, um, because they're all starting to make sense in in, uh, in the context of how you run the business, what would you say are some of the challenges to our industry in general? And perhaps you actually have touched upon that a little bit. Ooh, well, I mean, you know, that's that's a book, I think. But, um, <laughs> it is. Yeah. The challenge, the biggest challenge to manufacturing industry, and you've got to segment this a bit, is the rate of change. The rate of change of the way to market. I was in a, having a meeting this afternoon with Andrew, my sales director, because you used to sell through little uh, what are called re, uh, reps, manufacturers reps, which were the, were the equivalent of a mom and pop shop or a small chain. Now you're selling through big distribution, uh, if not an Amazon. And that's changing the market completely. The buying side is really today so specialized, there aren't in the electronics industry what used to be called buyers anymore. 20 years, 30 years ago, you dealt with a buyer who dealt with the passive side of the business. So you did connectors and capacitors and resistors. Each one of those areas is so specialized that buyers on the whole execute orders. To, to sell to a company, you've got to get to the design engineer and get designed in, and that you do over the internet. So our sales basically are run by our on our websites, which you know Ben is the mastermind of, of, of orchestrating the website, orchestrating the data. If I'm trying to design a product and I want a connector, I want to be able to go to a website that gives me the answers and not make me get through 15 different layers of pain. And we try and service the customer, service the design engineer with drawings and data and everything we can do to help them do their job because they don't necessarily know how a connector works. They know what they want and we try and tell them, what, tell them the answer. But that's a, a new way of looking at life. And computers are changing just about everything, changing the hierarchy of business. Everything now is what I call horizontal. Sorry, a designer designs something in California, in Silicon Valley. It'll go to a prototype company somewhere else. It may then go to China to be manufactured and get sold in India. And we try and track all that and help everybody all down the way using a computer, using computer systems. So we're keen on data, data management, and giving you the information you want. You know, Amazon have discovered the same secret, shall we say, but we've been doing it for a long time. Any survey you would look at of design engineers, their top concern is staying up to date with technology. Any manufacturer or vendor who can, in some cases, Disty's here too, who can provide content that helps them make a decision will be their best friend. And that doesn't make them go jump through hoops as they go through websites. And I've seen that. It's, it's totally changed. And, and um, I don't think half the senior management of most of the companies I meet, uh, even 
well, half, I don't think a quarter of the management really have cottoned on to that. It's there. It's real. Definitely. Well, before I let you go, Damon, um, I in, okay. in reading some of your background, um, I just found it fascinating, all the different foundations you're part of, and the, you mentioned the Economic Research Council, and yeah. the um, the Mankind Genetic Map Project I thought was really fascinating, and the sure. program. Can you just speak a little bit to, first of all, what, why are you so interested in this? And it's such a, such a huge part of your your biography. Uh, I'm just curious how you how you got involved in that. And plus, I, the fact that you um, you know you you know there's STEM right, science, technology, but yep. will you add the A? So I don't know if you've heard the term STEAM lately, but it's when you add art to the mix. And having a sister who's a painter, I'm very um, keen on learning more mm. about any engineering firm that actually cares about art and why they feel it's important so is that uh, you know given your your um your family history i can see that some of that influence but well as a generality i think arts and science are the same thing um and leonardo was an artist but he was also a scientist and until relatively recently artists engineers and scientists were all part of the same clubs the same groups and everything else it's only recent the university environment where they become specialized. Uh, so that's a sort of observation. There's no reason why engineers shouldn't be artists and vice versa. It, 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 genetics, of course, is, is part of the world of computers. And to me, again, it's, it's data, data management, what we can learn from data and how we can advance in the world. You know, man's standard of living is gonna only be through data because you, you've got to be able to manage the environment. Keep, we've got to clean the environment up. I mean, here we recycle all our water. We have solar panels on, on the roof. We've even, I have to say, I have slight tongue in cheek, but the, I'm not sure where it came from. The marketing department decided we weren't going to use plastic cups anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> this is serious. I know. In reality, uh, it sounds funny, but we spent a lot of money 10 years ago. We used thousands and thousands of gallons of water in our plating plants, and it was just ridiculous. And I said, come on, it took 10 years to get a system in place where we, we now, our own water is now cleaner than the water that comes down the pipe from the, from the public utility, which pleases me a lot. But you know, that, all of that, all of the genetics, all of the computer systems is, is fascinating. And as for the genetic map, the, the migration of man is fascinating. I was in Mexico three weeks ago on the Baja Peninsula looking at rock art sites right in the middle of the Baja. There's some fantastic seven, 8,000-year-old paintings by people on the rocks there. And you think, my God, isn't that extraordinary? If you go to France, the Chauvet Cave, which I've been down, 35,000 years old, and Picasso would admire those paintings. And the people living then were surrounded by um, Neanderthals, woolly mammoths, cyber-toothed tigers, and they produced phenomenal art. It, it just intrigues me. I mean, <laughs> perhaps I'm a bit weird, but it just fascinates me. That's why I'm into that. And economics, of course, is, the, is what we live by. It's probably the most important subject that's unstudied today. It used to be linked to philosophy and psychology, but it's become an academic subject. Uh, so everybody studies models and things. They forget to look at the real world. So what we try and look at economics from a from a um, evolutionary psychology point of view. These are just fascinating subjects, and uh, 
I think they're part of understanding where we're going. It certainly makes life interesting, though. It certainly does. Damon DeLaslo is also the co-founder and chairman of the Bradford Foundation, a privately funded nonprofit organization providing online learning resources, primarily around archaeology, anthropology, and genetic research. Its main objective, according to the website, is to discover, document, and preserve ancient rock art around the world and promote the study of early mankind's artistic achievements. Focusing on ancient rock art led to the Foundation's study of genetic research, headed by Professor Stephen Oppenheimer of Oxford University. The subsequent work in progress called the Journey of Mankind Genetic Map Project is an interactive genetic map showing a virtual global journey of modern man over the last 160,000 years. The Foundation is also producing a series of documentary films which explore why our African ancestors migrated, the choices they had in deciding their migration routes, and when this would have occurred. The first in the series, quote, reveals the halting but determined progress of our prehistoric predecessors and how our physical and behavioral adaptations were focused on surviving the struggle with our greatest enemy and sternest teacher, climate. It represents an amazing journey of opportunity and survival, confirmed by genetic science and documented by ancient rock art. Actually, one thing I forget to say, we've just linked up with the local uh, education academy and we're starting a class uh, of apprentices. So there'll be 20 kids in the class and for which we get the pick of sort of four or five a year. But it's rather exciting to actually be sponsoring 20 young engineers who will be cycled through the company Unfortunately, I won't be able to enjoy, uh, employ them all, but uh, they'll get a good start in life with a good CV. So that's that's exciting to help them on their way. That's cool. So you're making them employable at the very least. So you said you you, yes. you um, partnered with an acad- a local academy. Is that what you said? I missed that. It's called South Downs Academy. These are sort of what we call sixth form colleges, okay. which yeah. are now being turned. So they're not universities, mm-hmm. but these kids go on to do university courses. Uh, and the college, the academy, will organize them so that they can go through into doing various subjects at university level. So it's, it's really helping a lot of young, hopefully, um, find a job. Too many of our young are coming out of university with debt and degrees in things that aren't going to get them employed, which is sad and a failure to our children. Well, I know you have to get going, um, and I, I feel like I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Let's I know- do it again sometime. And really, I, if you didn't have another meeting, I'd keep. T- I would just have you keep talking. But um, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I. I also love the fact that you're a major shareholder in a wine company. So, as someone who lives in Northern California, <laughs> Royal Tequila is fantastic. Yeah, well, that's I'm- a project to trying to make a wine company make money, which is not that easy. Thank you so much, Damon. Anyway, lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and Harwin's Damon DeLazlo an engineer, entrepreneur, extraordinaire, and someone who, obviously, won't let the grass grow beneath his feet. I'm Amy Kalnoskis, and you've been listening to EE Entrepreneurs from EE World Online and WTWH Media. Join me as we uncover the human stories behind the engineering successes that make a difference.